This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Good day, greetings, hello, and welcome to Art at the End of the World, the podcast where we welcome artists, entertainers, and cultural leaders speaking about what it is to make art here at the end. And here with the Zoomer Podcast Network, my name is Mark Wigmore, host of the Oasis on the new Classical FM in Toronto, and welcome to a special new Classical FM-focused edition of the program. And this is a podcast about artistry and the history of artists. And through long-form conversations, we get into their reflections on how they make art and their experiences and their life, but also thoughts on our evolving or, uh, dare I say, devolving culture. Great to be with you. We have a wonderful episode planned, and this episode is sponsored by Crow's Theatre, one of the country's most acclaimed arts organizations and based in Toronto's vibrant East End community. Crow's Theatre creating unforgettable theatre that examines and illuminates the pivotal narratives of our times. Crowstheater.com for info and tickets. Go and enjoy a show at Crow's at Carla and Dundas, and you can currently see Carly Street in Grounded at the theatre running through this weekend. Also, thank you to Red Eye Media, a leading arts and entertainment communications company working with award-winning clients, including the Musical Stage Company, SummerWorks Performance Festival, and many others, redeyemedia.ca for further info. Well, we're over the hump. The first five episodes of Season 2 are in the books, and we have re-released five episodes in our remix series, all available to you at classicalfm.ca, artattheendoftheworld.com, and of course you can subscribe, that's what we would prefer you to do, at iTunes and Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and uh, all the other apps and places. Please subscribe and download our conversations with classical superstar Alexandra Streliski, nominated for three Junos in a couple weeks. Filmmaker Robert Lantos, who just uh, picked up a record-setting amount of Canadian Screen Award nominations for uh, his film, The Song of Names. Very exciting. Theater heavyweights Wayne Mingesha and Chris Abraham and documentarian Alan Zweig was last week. Just search for Art at the End of the World for all those conversations. Today's guest is someone hopefully you'll be very familiar with if you listen to the new Classical FM. Marilyn Lightstone, the host of uh, Nocturne, which you can hear every evening on the radio station. But of course, so many people know her as an actress over the years on film television, on stage all across this country, certainly in the early part of her career, and then into film and television features like Lies My Father Told Me in Praise of Older Women, uh, speaking of Robert Lantos, and her voice work in the cult classic animated feature, Heavy Metal. Did you see that one? Great. And I can remember Marilyn's voice in that particular film. Uh, Her TV shows, Anne of Green Gables, Road to Avonlea, The Littlest Hobo, Titans, and The King of Kensington. And she's currently still on TV, on Vision TV, with a program, a music program titled Your All-Time Classic Hit Parade, which is in its third season and going into its fourth. Marilyn has a beautiful voice. It is a, a great gift. 
She was the voice of the Bravo Network for a long, long time. I remember listening to her there. Uh, she's the voice of the new Classical FM. Even going back into my childhood, I think of her voicing uh, in Heathcliff and GoBots, and she voiced numerous animated shows over the years. She wrote a book as well titled Rogues and Vagabonds. She's a photographer, visual artist, singer, kind of uh, just the whole package. Really uh, has spent a lot of time in show business and the arts, and her delivery and presence, very specific. She is a real pro. For me, over this last year, I feel very fortunate I've had a chance to get to know Marilyn and uh, just love talking to her. She's just such a resource, uh, always very upbeat and has, at the same time, very strong opinions about art and culture and politics. So let's get to it. My talk with Marilyn Lightstone on Art at the End of the World. I think I've told you this before, but Marilyn is my mother's name as well. No, you didn't tell me that before. So, there's only been a few Marilyns in my life. In your life. And you're one of them. Okay. I'm pleased. By the way, uh, studying up on you was a very pleasurable experience, I have to say. Oh, thank you, Mark. Just going through your career and going through all your different... All the different avenues of your career and all the different parts you played and everything. It's. Uh, I'm glad you're glad. It, glad you I had so much fun day. doing it. It was like, oh my gosh, all the movies and TV shows. I, and I feel the same way too. It's been it's been fun. It, it is fun. Oh yeah, it has. You been look fun. back at it fun. I, 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 oh, I do very much. Yeah. No bad feelings about the the dirty old entertainment business. Well, not about the entertainment <laughs> business, but there are things show that, business. There are things that yeah, there are things that, that irk me, but I'm I, I you know that's the way they are, and that's what it is, and that's what show business is, and you know I'm not going to spend too much energy. That's how you really feel. It. Well, there's no point. There's right. no point in in expressing your displeasures. I've discovered right. So you know, how did, keep, how keep did you learn? How did you learn that lesson? <laughs> well, experience. Just you know, you kind of you say how terrible your things are. Nobody pays any attention, <laughs> so we really kind of shut up and just get on with it. <laughs> that More is productive. true, right? Well, energy is energy. You know, it just yeah. it just can be converted into so many things. And if you have the choice between converting it into something that you enjoy or spending it complaining and bitching, I mean, knowing that there's very little to be going to be done about it, uh, you know, that's the choice I've made. Knowing you the little bit that I do over just over this last year. I honestly believe that. I believe that down to your, the base of your soul, that you're a person who can let go of things and, well, you and, have and to. enjoy your you life. And, and As long as there are other things you know, in the future to look forward to and that there's progress and forward movement right. and you're not left to stew. And I think that's what happens to a lot of people. So nothing else is happening. So they kind of they remain mired in their past. And right. you know, what's the point? It's such an interesting thing because there are certainly, I mean, I'm sure you have examples, too, of people in your life who that's, that's the badge they, they walk around with. Yes, and I really feel for them, too. And you, you try to, you know, when you meet people like that, you, you try to think that you have some influence, in, you know, getting things moving forward. But uh, very often people who are who they are and change is a very difficult thing. You know, it's difficult to do for yourself and it's certainly practically impossible to do for somebody else. What, what, what was the toughest moment of change for you in your life where you had to make a very difficult decision about where you were headed? Oh, gosh. We've all had a few of those moments, right, where there was well, that fork in the road? It happens when you feel, well, I've on a particular road in a certain avenue, and then it's suddenly it's drying up. You know, it's kind of the road's coming to an end, and when what do you do next? There's a moment of panic until you kind of realize there are other things that, that you do want to do. 
Because being left without something that you really want to do. I, th- I guess that a general thing for me is that I have to have a project that I love, something in which I can direct my, you know, my energies and my, my attention to. I mean, I've been in that situation too. And if there are, if you like making things and creating things, mm-hmm. that's not altogether that hard to and do. Making it, but the thing is, you know, for example, if getting you're people in, to it, it, take well, interest you know, you're, in it. If you're, is, in, you're in the theater, for example, yeah. you can you can't you can't act in isolation. You can say, no. okay, I'm a, no, I'm an actor, I'm an actress. And incidentally, I use the term actress just in case you call me an actor. You do, you do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Why do you? Boy, because, we were opening up so many uh, okay, jars here. Because the history of the of the actress, the female person on the stage, is so completely different from that of of men and if we change the name we lose all of that history and that's what happens when we change words into other words that are supposed to be neutral and neither you know not masculine or feminine right. we lose the nuance and uh, well the role of women you know we first think of shakespeare for example you know young boys played women's roles and uh, any woman that dared to be on the stage finally when they were permitted to be on the same words, really thought to be no better, you know, than, than a harlot, a right. prostitute, you right. know, a woman of loose morals, and uh, that it really is not as uh, an antique uh, an idea that you might think. I'd say when the, even when I began thinking about my my you know my future life when I was in school, I think that idea was still prevalent. That uh, unless you were lucky and became a big movie star, that you know wasn't quite respectable right. to be to be an actress. Even some of the roles, too. I mean, I think about, I, I just happened to be watching TCM last night and uh, Marilyn Monroe uh-huh. starring in this sort of strange cowboy movie. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't remember what the title was, but I did look at her character. It was, you know, she was sort of helpless and there was this mental illness element seemed to be happening and, and completely being led around by the men it left me thinking, gosh, we sure had women in a certain place for a well, very long time. Well, just we couldn't vote. Movies. We couldn't vote. You needed your... your. When I first began, you know, life as an independent person after finishing my training and, and moving to Toronto, I, I didn't have a credit rating. Right. Uh, if you wanted to buy anything, you needed your husband's signature, mm-hmm. you know, to get a credit card or your father's. You needed some kind of a male personage to vouch for you. I mean, the tremendous changes within my lifetime, which is getting increasingly longer by the moment. So I've seen a lot of changes, but um, that very much was the idea that women are, you know, not really capable, not capable and have to be protected and cosseted. And because they were incapable, they were also made them inferior. Anyway, that's a, the whole business about, you know, women's empowerment is a, a great big sidetrack. But, we could but take. The, the, the impetus for that bit of conversation was actress. So we don't yes. forget that title for those all yes. those reasons. And yes, more. and I remember once many years ago when this first came into being, this idea that we were all had to adopt this new name, and my objecting to it. And I, I, I had an interview with someone from one of the Toronto newspapers, and again this this subject came up because I referred myself as an actress and uh, was called on it, and I explained it and I said she's would you rather I changed it. I said, yes, please, change it to actress. That's what I want to be called. She says, well, I'll change it, but my editor probably won't let it through. And that's really what happens. So even though you specifically ask for something, I mean, talk about lack of women's impairment, the fact that I want to become an actress and I cannot be called an actress. Right. Because, and the thing is, too, people, people assume that if you change the word, you change the attitude. And my idea is change the attitude. The word is perfectly fine. It's the attitude that needs addressing. And changing the word does not necessarily change the attitude. 
Robert Lantos was on the program recently. You know Robert. Mm-hmm. Um, he We talked a little bit about where we are in the modern award system and not so much about actor and actress, but someone had approached him and said that women directors actually need their own category at the Oscars because they've been so excluded from the conversation. Well, isn't that a kind of sexism on its own? I mean... That's what he thought. I think so, too, actually. The idea is that if you direct, you're a director. Right. You're not a female director or a male director. But if you're an actor, you're an actor or an actress. Well, just because it's my history, right? my personal history, the history of the American director is still, you know, rather female director, I meant to right. say, is still kind of developing. It is. Really. It's, a new, it's a new phenomenon, whereas the profession of actress, you know, goes back hundreds of years. So Montreal. Yep. That's where it begins. And I often try to remember this, that Montreal was the heart of this country. It's special. <laughs> and, 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 and it really, but it really was. That's yeah. where the banks were. That's where yeah. everything was happening until late 60s and everything changes and suddenly we're all here in yes. Toronto. <laughs> but but what, what was that upbringing for you? What was that? Well, you know, when you're born in a place, you really take it very much for granted. But mm. it was a very pleasurable place to grow up. Although, you know, now that I know some of its history, I realize that there was a tremendous amount of, you know, political pressure and inequality and, and bias and anti-Semitism and all the usual nasty things you find in any big city turned up in Montreal. Right. But Montreal also has a, a laissez-faire, you know, kind of a charm, a kind of let's party, let's yeah. have a good time. And uh, the mixture of peoples, too, I think, in, in Montreal was was very interesting to me because even... Well, during the war, just after the war, before the huge flux of immigration happened in Montreal, we still lived on a street that was so varied, you know, kind of French Canadians and Europeans and Anglos and Wasps and Jewish people, you know, all mixed up together and the the Irish. And uh, that wasn't true for every neighborhood in Montreal, but... I, I lived in, quite close to St. Lawrence below the, the, the famous Maine, just one block over, and um, it had a texture and a richness and a wonderful smells. And That's a happy memory for you. Uh, it is. No, this, I think Montreal thing. was a great place to grow up in. I'm, I'm very, very glad. But, I'm always glad to go back and visit. I, I have no desire to live there, you know, permanently. Uh, for the same reasons um, as the reasons for which I, I left Montreal, I just... It's not that I wanted to leave the city. It's just that I was going to be an actress. And if you wanted to work in the English language, they, you know, the province of Quebec wasn't the place to do it. The center yeah. was here in Toronto. That's why I left Victoria, B.C. too. That's I thought right. if I want to be in this business right. in, a, in a larger capacity. That's right. If you want to make cars, you know, you go live in what, well. Yeah, you used to go live <laughs> in Detroit. used to be Detroit. <laughs> but, uh, Who knows? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 No, I, I loved it. I, I, didn't, I, had a, I have good memories of Montreal. What was the family situation, siblings and all that? I've got two younger siblings, two younger brothers. Okay. Uh, one is four and a half years younger than I, and uh, who is a grandfather and a, uh, a, a terrific guy, and then a fellow who used to work at, at City TV in the old days. Okay. He was the youngest member of the staff. He was a cameraman at the time, and okay. he now lives in British Columbia. And uh, he's 14 and a half years younger than I am. So I'm kind of half his mom and half his, you know, his big sister. Yeah, right. That yeah. that happens. Yeah. Right? And then when there's those late in the game yeah. kids that come along. And I, I think it was in the film Lies My Father Told Me that you said there were some some parallels there to your own upbringing. Is that, have I got the right film there? Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, there, there were. There was this family situation in which the husband really was... 
in conflict with the the, the father, you know, of my father. Yeah. And uh, I lived in a situation like that. We lived with my grandmother, and uh, it wasn't the easiest situation. And also just kind of financially in terms of the neighborhood, you know, where we were shooting that movie, it's also, it was where I grew up. And I remember one day we were going on a... Um, to, to look at a house in the film, to see it in an empty house. And it was a street over from where I grew up. And, you know, it just reminded me of all the houses that I saw when I'd visit my friends, you know, after school. The so, kind of Montreal flats, cold water flats, right. with the outside staircases. Whatever conflicts there were in our household, I was supported and, and loved and cosseted. Right. And always supported, too. And this is the thing that I, I, I kind of assumed that all the other girls that I went to school with had family situations like mine in which whatever they wanted wanted to do would be supported by their parents and they would be they would be uh, encouraged but it turns out uh, that was not the case and I only found out as an adult that all these young women um, who I thought really had, had a much more materially advantageous life than, than I had because it was always a struggle in our family right. you know, just to get along and get through but some of their parents didn't give them that unqualified support. And it kind of shocked me. I thought, well, surely, you know, every, especially every little girl, you know, who paints or wants to dance or wants to write or would be in. But that was not the case. And uh, in the case of my family, who, um, who were not well educated, they were not sophisticated, but somehow they trusted me and they supported me. Whatever I wanted to do was going to be, you know, just fine with them. Which, like you say, going back to the beginning of this conversation, when you were talking about moving to Toronto and, you know, needing the husband to sign the, the checks and mm-hmm. all the rest of it, you know, it was a different time. And it was, you mm-hmm. know, not necessarily, Very you know, much. it was deemed that the daughter shall do this and that is the respectable thing to do. And these are the respectable jobs and so on. So I, you can totally see how that happened. But it is yes. unique. This was a time to remember, Mark, in which if say if there were three kids in a family that was financially constrained, Mm -hmm. the two the boys would be educated and the girls wouldn't be. Right. That that's you know how close this still is. Now, admittedly, I'm you know I'm getting on in years, so when I look back at you know at my youth, it's it's some time ago, but still, the boys would go to school, they'd go to university, but the girls would become typists and receptionists and stenographers, and if they were lucky, secretaries or maybe a nurse. Right. That was my first ambition, actually, as my aunt was a nurse in the in the Canadian Army during the war. I think Bill Burr put it very well when he said, you know, the writing of the Constitution wasn't that long ago. That's like three people ago <laughs> when you yes. actually stack them up. Yes. You know, it isn't that long ago. Yes, it isn't. You were supported mm-hmm. with these ideas. And what were some of those early ideas? Well, all the things that I love to do now are the things <laughs> I love to do then. Oh, I and it. I'm just going to tell you, you know, I... I, I love to read, I love to write, and I love to paint, and I like to uh, to act and put on plays with my friends. And um, Was there a person in your life who, who sort of showed you the way to, not really. to accomplish this? It's things? just I wanted to do that, and as I say, my parents gave me free reign. They never said, no, you should be doing this, that, or the other. They they always were very pleased. And uh, Well, you see, I was a good kid. I wasn't a problem kid that they had to control. I, right. I did well at school, and I, you know, I didn't fight with, you know, with my friends or my family, and I, I was well behaved. But um, no, no one ever said to me, "No, you can't do that, or you mustn't do that, or you shouldn't do that, or whatever." I, I just was allowed to be who I wanted to be. 
Did you actually go in and experience theater and go and... No, that was another irony because because we we were so financially constrained, it cost money to go to the theater. Of course. So occasionally went to the movies when you could get in because in Montreal at the time there was a law that unless you were 16 years old, you couldn't go to a movie's. Unless it was a special kids feature, because there'd been a there'd been a, a fire in a movie theater in Montreal somewhere in the 30s, okay. in which I think there'd been some loss of life. So from that time on, kids were not allowed in the into the movies. So what we would have to do if you wanted to go, you know, you're 13 or 14, you dressed up in your mom's coat and you put on <laughs> lots of lipstick. I mean, I'm going to think of it now. I'm sure we looked every bit as young as we were. The lipstick didn't make any difference. Standing on some and other exactly, kids' shoulders. You know, your yeah. mother's hid clothes in her coat and everything and can go and pretend to be 16 years old. Right. Put on, put on the lipstick, put on the makeup, yes. do whatever you can. Yes, I'm sure we fooled no one, but somehow we got into <laughs> got into the movies. Yeah, but in terms of theater and tickets, and all, there was no money for any of that, and I, they really was financially constrained. Uh, what did What did Dad do, or what? Did... My dad was a printer by trade. Okay, and sometimes he was able to practice his profession. Other times he wasn't, but he just turned his hand to what you know, whatever he could. He painted houses. He, he made pizzas, you know, kind of in, in fairs. He really turned his hand to whatever he could do. And uh, not, a, not, a, not a lazy guy, but not really a business person, not a business head. He wasn't someone who's going to establish a business and, you know, and, and work it in a business-like way. He right. didn't have that kind of mentality. Yeah. In fact, I, I think probably he liked to do things with his hands, too. He liked to make things. I yeah. sometimes lust after that life, I must say. You know, making things? Yeah, once in a while I get out there with an axe and a pretty blunt instrument, but, but start cutting <laughs> some firewood, and I do feel like this. maybe this would have been better. The, simp- the simple life? Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I regret so much is that during my moves, uh, when I was a grown-up person and I'd be living out of town, maybe my parents were keeping some things for me, mm-hmm. they moved house, and... Uh, some of the things that never turned up afterwards was my, my McGill blazer, my, my duffel coat, my fry cowboy boots, and a photograph album that my father had made for me. Actually compiled for me, because he was a printer and he was to putting things together. Sure. And it had all my teenage photographs on my high school. Photographs of on the skating rink, you know, and doing sports at school and everything. Gone. I'd pay a lot of money, really, if that turned up kind of on my doorstep. And only in your memory rent, now. So yeah. Only in my memory. But I remember my dad, who wasn't very good about buying me presents, but he <laughs> made me presents. Right. He made me presents. And this book had my initial and had my initial on in sort of leatherette. But he'd done it but with his own two hands. He well, made this book for me. I can't, I can't name 19 out of the last 20 presents that were given to me. <laughs> but the one he made for you, you can remember I remember. Very well. And the fact that I don't have it caused me great sorrow. <laughs> yeah. So anyone out there, if you know where it is, turn it up. There'll be a huge reward, <laughs> a huge I promise. Reward. No, really, I'd, I'd, I'd pay a lot to get that. Fair enough. To have that book back. Okay. If somebody's but, got it in a, in a dusty uh, yes. box somewhere, yeah, that would be a thing to find. So uh, you're not that aware of the theater out there, but you, you are Not com- at all. compelled to act and compelled to put on skits and sketches and, yeah. and, and have stories. I, I liked doing that, too. I like putting on magic shows. Oh, well, that takes a degree of skill, you see, that I didn't I, have. See, I didn't, had no skill. I remember actually <laughs> telling everybody to turn around so that I could do the trick. I think so, my brother had a magic kit. There were kits, I think, that kids were. could buy, weren't they? Yeah, and I remember. At the I back of like, comic like, books, there were little things where you could send in for them. That's right. I think my, my mom actually got me a little box of magic, and I, I wasn't that good at it. So I would have to tell people, okay, just turn around for a sec. And, you know. <laughs> 
But uh, <laughs> I love that, and I love kids getting creative. I remember putting on little radio shows, too, and so on. So I, perhaps that's where things were headed. What was the step to say, okay, well, I, I, I want to actually take this a little further? Of course, you know, there there were very few theaters, certainly English-speaking theaters in Montreal. There was a, a summer theater called uh, Mountain Playhouse, which was on the top of Mount Royal, I believe. And there may have been one or two summer summer stock things, but there wasn't a real English-speaking theater. It was only uh, a theater called Her or His Majesty's, depending who was on the throne. That was a roadhouse for stuff from the United States or from Britain. But other than that, there was very little to be seen. I hadn't seen many plays, but I got to university and thinking, well, what am I going to do with my life? There was nowhere to train to be uh, to be in the uh, in the theater at and all. And you were in university in, in Montreal. In Montreal, I went America. to McGill. Yeah, I got involved in student theater because before that, I thought, well, what am I going to do with myself? My days of being a lawyer had to do with what I saw on television. That you you got a chance to stand up in court and make wonderful speeches, a la Perry Mason. But I know now, of course, that being a lawyer is really not at all like that. Sure isn't. No, it isn't. It's very right. hard my, work. and My kind lawyer of, friends, it's, oh, it's not that glamorous. No, no. It's, it's really tough. Yeah. So I had no clue. I had a romanticized edition of what that would be. And I, I started doing theater at McGill. And uh, there was a, a group called the Red and White Review, which was a, a student-written both music and, and, you know, and text every year that was put on. A lot of people actually um, worked for the Red and White Review, you know, went on to become professional performers. The dean of, of arts at the time was Dean Fieldhouse. We call him Dean Fieldmouse. And his idea <laughs> was that um, there was no place for the study of theater in academia for right. acting. At the time, those of us who loved to act and, you know, be in shows thought that was terrible. But, you know, I've come to the conclusion he was right because acting is not an academic Subject. I think academia should be restricted to people who are in academic subjects. And I found that when I went to theater school uh, after McGill University, I really had to unlearn all the things, all the ways you approach a subject in terms of studying it, you know, as a, you know, a book, a text or whatever that you're going to write. And it's very different from what you have to do. There's to, still a way to, to, to study it, but it's just way a to different study part it. of your brain. You have to be, you know, you have to, the, the whole idea of improvising, you know, is very important in, yeah. the, in the theater and acting, and it has no place in, in academia, I don't think. Right. That really kind of gave me the, the bug, but still, there was no place to study. And I thought, well, it, all the people who wanted to be actors, you know, people like, you know, Christopher Plummer and whatnot, who were also from Montreal, they either went to London or to New York to study or to work. And I couldn't afford to go to New York or to London because I, you know, I'd managed to sort of scrape up enough funds uh, between, me, you know, my dad helping me a little and kind of working at a bunch of jobs to get through university. What, but, were, what were some of the little jobs? That's always interesting oh, to me. Oh, kind of. Um, when I was in high school, well, I love to paint. I, I love doing visual arts is very much a part of my my thing, too. Course, I, I get yeah. the itch, you know, a couple of times a year in which I have to do it. So my high school art teacher... By the way, beautiful photographs, everything I've looked at that you've oh, shot are so gorgeous. Th- thank and, you, Mark. And I know you're very passionate thank about you, it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I really am. I, yeah. I, just every now and then I have to make something physically with, with, my, with, my, with my hands, you right. know, with a paintbrush, with, with, with whatever. So there was in high school, and when I was 14, my art teacher, her name was Leah Sherman, and she went on actually to help start um, the art program at Concordia University. Okay. She was the head there. But I was kind of her pet. 
Not that she, you know, behaved in that way, but she was tremendously supportive of what I was doing in her class. And she wanted me to go to uh, um, University of Michigan, where she studied fine arts, to get a master in fine arts. But I, you know, even, I, I really wasn't sure. I wanted a general education. I had no means anyway to go and study anywhere outside of Montreal. Abroad, yes. No, sure. not at all. So she got me a job with her brother-in-law, whose name was Avi Morrow. And who was very interested in the arts, a very interesting man who just died this past year. And uh, I worked there on weekends and holidays, and I was the filing clerk, basically, down in an area in Montreal, which is now old Montreal and all very chic, but at the time it was an old factory district. And they, they made cleaning, industrial cleaning products, this okay. company, Avmore Limited. Abby Morrill, that was his name, my boss. And I worked there every holiday, every Easter, every Christmas, every summer, for years and years Office and years. Office job. Really, yeah. and what was not so bad t- for not, a young person? No, it, it was great, and everyone was very kind to me. I worked a lot of like dishwashing jobs. Oh, and, never know like, had it, never had to do that. that kind of stuff, but so. you know, what was so nice. I yeah. mean, when I was going to Montreal to have a costume fitting for In Praise of Older Women, talking about Robert Lantos, that right, was right. his film. Yeah, one of his first films. Very successful film. Uh, yes, it was, and, and a very controversial very film controversial as well. Film. Yes. And you were in it. And, and, and I was in it. Yeah. So um, our our costume fitting was to be in old Montreal, and there I was. And I thought, I wonder if Avmore Limited is still there and it's open, if there's anyone there I still remember. <laughs> so I went, I walked over yeah. to it, and uh, Mr. Moore was not there. Mr. Chinks's partner had long since died. But there was a young woman who was just taken on, a member of their family, who had just started when I was kind of making my way out of that situation. And she was there, and she greeted me very warmly. She says, come here, I have something to show you. So we, she takes me through this labyrinth of rooms, you know, on the mm-hmm. main floor of the mm-hmm. offices, and takes me into a place, and there's, there's a painting on the wall that I'd painted in high school. Oh, my goodness. Now, I'd, I can't remember ever giving that to them. Maybe maybe Leah Sherman, you know, the, the sister-in-law of Abby. But there was one of my paintings. That's almost he, a surreal moment yeah. where you would weren't not even sure you could identify your own painting because why well, no, would it I, be there? I, rec- right? I recognize it, but I don't didn't remember ever giving it to him. Right. And then she said, and oh, incidentally, and she took it off the wall and turned it around so I could see the back. And there, tucked into the back of the frame, were various clippings of various performances that I'd done that, that that they save and they put it back there. I was I was so 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 touched. That is unbelievable. That yeah. is a sweet story. Yeah. And I got flown I performed in Montreal. I'd get flowers and you know oh, whatever. Oh gosh. That's have lunch. Nice. It was it was good. Pretty nice. So the so uh, filing office yeah. and that sort of took you through and 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 yeah. and then I was summer camp counselor. I was a drama counselor in summer camp. Okay. So yeah. using some skills. Yeah. And yeah, and that was kind of fun, you know, doing performances of the Mikado and HMS Pinafore and whatnot. Right, with, with the kids. With these kids. How, how old would the kids be? In that uh, they'd be 11, 12, right. maybe were, 13. And you were like, what, 18, 19, 20? Kind uh, of yeah. 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 I, I did that. Yeah, fun, so, isn't it? It's really fun. Yeah. I had a good time doing it. I did it for like sort of a period where it's like a sweet spot to do it, and then it gets to a point it's like, okay. Yes. <laughs> Yes, yeah. only a few years, yeah. and then, you know, you've done, been there, done that. Yeah, got to got to move on. So, so those are the jobs that take you through, and meanwhile, you're you're trying to find this next level of training for your acting career. Uh, well, luckily, during the last year of university, the National Theatre School opened in Montreal. Right. Now, talk about you know coincidence and timing, because if it hadn't, 
I don't know what would have helped me, quite frankly, because as I said, I couldn't afford to go to London or New York. So there I was in at the theater school and uh, able to live at home. I didn't even have to, you know, to pay expenses for room and board. I was able to live at home as I had been during university. I didn't leave my parents' home until I was twenty-four years old. Now, which that, is unusual, unusual for then, uh, for then, but also <laughs> not that unusual but, anymore. You see, but so easy for me because my parents were so open and understanding. And I had my my bedroom, my bedroom door. My dad put up. We had apartment six on uh, on Queen Mary Road in in Montreal, and my dad put six A on my bedroom doors. Mine was apartment six A, and uh, <laughs> I, I had privacy. I I can't. As I say, my parents were not sophisticated or worldly people, but they had such a intuitive understanding of how to let me be and just let me be myself. Now, you see, the thing is, too, my parents were Canadian-born parents. Right. Unlike many of the people I went to school with who were either immigrants themselves or they were the children of immigrants, I was the daughter of Canadian-born parents and even my grandparents really had come over as small children. So I did not grow up in a situation where ah, I had to endure all the pressures you right. know, that happen really in, in families like that, where really they have to prove themselves, they have to cement their it's situation. It's a pretty huge you difference, know? even just a huge to have that, uh, huge. that one generation that's you know been there. Very, very, very different. Yeah. So National Theatre School happens. In fact, uh, Chris Abraham, who was just on the podcast from Crow's Theatre across town, he uh, I'm pretty sure he, that's where he went as well. A really good experience, I would take it. Well, it, it it was. Not perfect. Right, of course. Not perfect. It was also new. Also very new, yeah. and all the people running it were sort of new at running it. They weren't people experienced at running theatre schools. But no, for me, it was a very positive experience. What was the jump where you thought, okay, I'm going to start to take some roles and audition and well it's just once you you know once you finish school you, that's the idea that was it that was it so it came to toronto and um i i had i'd say very positive early experiences i, I did a lot of radio a lot of radio drama and uh, I still like working in a radio studio and, and working with a microphone. Is uh, slaving over a hot microphone. Over a hot microphone. Yeah. And enjoy. They did a lot of of radio drama at the CBC in the old days. Of course. And sometimes with like a full orchestra, like with live musicians, you know, things which cost wise would never be considered now at all. But uh, late sixties, mid sixties. Uh, we're talking mid sixties okay. to late sixties. So we're sort of in Toronto, the good. I, I mean, I, I yeah. think of you as being right at the heart of the, the 60s cultural changes, but this city wasn't totally a part of that. I mean, I guess there were pockets of it that were, were experiencing all the cultural change. I don't know how connected you were with everything that was going on. I, I, I was so busy just living my life. Right. I don't know if I paid any attention to trends or, or what have you. I just right. wanted to stay alive. You, you, were, you weren't, uh, were you hanging out in the coffee houses seeing no, the, the, I wasn't. the singer-songwriters? No, I, no I wasn't a singer-songwriter then. I was really, a, I was an actress and right. um, one of them, really hanging one out with stage. The actors. Hanging out with the actors. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of my, my favorite experiences was the Crest Theatre Hour Company. I don't know if you've ever heard about that, but there were a lot of actors at the time who were part of this company. Um, the Crest Theatre was a repertory company. Yeah, of course. Founded by the Davis yeah. family here in yeah. Toronto. Yeah. And they had somehow gotten involved in a relationship with the school board, whereby they would send out a troupe of actors 
uh, for six months to tour all through the province of Ontario, the tiniest little towns, you know, as far north as the road would take you and as far to the border. Good experience for any artist. I 250 think. schools in six yeah. months, high schools. Yeah. So um, that was one of my experiences, the early, early ones. And um, I've been in every small town in Ontario. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> It's funny because they do. They send classical musicians to do. Yes, they those do now. Tours yes, they and, do. But this was still early days, you right? Know, just finding arts councils and finding funds to do that. But we were able to do that because of the school board. It it was great fun. I mean, we went to places where the road ended. For example, in Manitowoc, which is a mining town in northern, and the road just ended there. You couldn't go any further north. <laughs> right. And we'd get off the this. bus, and they, they'd have, they sent a piper, you know, to pipe us off our bus. And then sure. if we stay, had to stay overnight, we would stay, you know, with a local family. And uh, everybody in town would come to the, uh, to the performance because television, you know, the CBC didn't get that far north in Ontario at the time. I mean, wow. this is a long time ago. Right, yeah. So, so the, the, the circus was in town. The circus was in town, yeah. and everybody was involved, and it was a, a wonderful, wonderful experience. Was that... Shakespeare or what was it? Was uh, it was performed? it was based on the curriculum of the high school curriculum okay. of the year. So right. there'd be kind of sketches. Right. There'd be sketches and poems and little songs. And uh, Harry Summers at the time was dating Barbara Chilcott, whose family really produced this affair, right. and. Um, he composed some music for us, you know, kind of. It, 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 I don't. Everything seemed to be a little less formal than, than than it is now. Everything is all very constructed and kind of laid out in a way. There's kind of like a floor plan or a, what they right. have to follow. So, but I, I think things were a lot looser then, very loosey goosey, because there was never any money. There weren't the right people. It wasn't involved. Kind of last minute, a spirit of improvisation. Right. I think nothing had established itself. You know, all these wonderful little theaters that are around, you know, now, didn't exist. They didn't have a chance. And the only things that could sort of survive were things that had kind of Canada Council funding, and they were kind of a bit stodgier, but they, they paved the way. They, they, they served their purpose. So you have this great experience traveling around Ontario, and you're living in Toronto, and you're hanging out with actors, and you're very much entrenched in the, the theater scene. And were you thinking... This is it. This is the life. Well, this is the life. I wanted. And then I got to go to Stratford. So that was, you know, very shortly after that, I, I went to Stratford and spent a couple of years there. And uh, it, it was a, a wonderful time. It's but, like going uh, to camp, right? Stratford? <laughs> Everybody I talked to, it's like you just pick up your life from Toronto and, or wherever and you, you have go. To be, and you this go was during and, Michael Langham's time. Right. Thing, again, things were different. Things are a bit smaller. The enterprise was not as huge as it is now. Sure. I don't think it was as, quite as commercial. Company was smaller. We didn't have big musical productions. Um, it was really a Shakespearean festival. But again, very important. And uh, I worked with, you know, with wonderful people. And uh, gosh, I remember one incident. Um, I was understudying. Yeah, Franny Island. That's oh, right. right. Anyway, she was like size one. Okay. And I wasn't size one. And I was her understudy. And very shortly in the season, uh, before we had a chance to have any understudy rehearsals, I think she had... A nerve attack or something. She lost her voice, and she was prone to this. She she get laryngitis because of nerves. So I had to perform her role without any rehearsals. Zoe Caldwell Talk was about in the production, nerves. and Alan Bates was in the production, and of course, wonderful Butch Blake, Mervyn Blake, and they were so kind to me because I knew all the lines, thankfully. Um, but they kind of they they pulled me and they pushed me across the stage to make sure you know I would be in the proper place and would be in the light and everything, and we're just so lovely. 
there's a there's a generosity really in you know in, in the theater that that is real. I think and it's real if, it. if you're part of that generosity, if you're generous yourself. Well, you know, it needs to be sort of reciprocal. I mean, well, yes, it does. Yeah. Yes, it does. But I can't see anyone who isn't generous wanting to be in the theater because you are so dependent on everybody with you. Your performance is only as good as the weakest link in the, you know, in the thing. It and is a listening game. It is. There, as mind as you, there are some there are some performers who really think that well, you know, they want to be the the big shot and the big star, and so they'll. They'll kind of negate the other performers, but I, I don't understand that because, well, I just don't understand that because it, it's an ensemble. And we, we at the theater school, we were trained in ensemble acting. That was the basis of the thing, right. is that you work together as a team. You're not there to become an actor or, you know, kind of star and out there on your own doing your own thing. You were there to learn how to, to learn how to work, to work with other But I people. think sometimes organically you will suddenly see that somebody has this tremendous talent and that's maybe what starts to create nervousness and second guessing yourself because you're, that, that can create divisions, I guess, when you're looking at. Well, there talent. are divisions. <laughs> there are divisions, but there are there's some people who maybe shouldn't be in the theater. Like there there are you know there are classifications as there are in every profession right. as to who's okay at their job and who's well you know all right and there's someone who's yeah solid and then there are other people who are really kind of brilliant, right. and thrilling to watch and always interesting. So if you're yeah. lucky. It's art at the end of the world. My name is Mark Wigmore. We'll return with Marilyn Lightstone in moments. You're listening to the Zoomer Podcast Network. You are with art at the end of the world on the Zoomer Podcast Network. We return to my conversation with a voice you know very well from the new classical FM, Marilyn Lightstone. Something just sort of reviewing your, your TV and film career is that I really feel like every time that you were performing, you were in the character. I really believed that you were this person. And that oh, that's a nice thing to say. So Thank often you. I don't see that. And just okay. going through, you know, what's what when you're putting something like this together and you're studying, you know, you on Cagney and Lacey and you and your various films and, and you get to put it all together and see it all at once. It started to be a real theme for me that you were completely believable in every character. Well, I just love acting. Yeah. You know, I, I love acting. I don't do, get to do nearly as much of it as I, I really would like to. Sure. It's it's challenging and, uh, and, and fun. It is fun. Do you look back at that theater career and then what turned into film and TV as just this heady time in your life like the best time in your life or do you think of it now as every time is the best time yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no I kind of whatever I'm into at the moment is something that involves me and I say it's a lot as long as it's work that involves my, my mind and my heart you know my emotions uh and my and my disciplines you know that I've acquired through the years I'm 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 happy no it's whatever is of the moment if, if I'm painting that's what I'm into if right. I'm you know acting that's what I'm into or I like that type of artistry. Somebody like, you know, I've interviewed Jane Sibri a couple times, and it's always fascinating to me to see there was this point in her career where there was a lot of light on her, but that doesn't, it's sort of meaningless, you know, in yeah. the greater scope of her artistic, what she wants to do, yeah. you know, and that that's very special. I think if you have that internally, it's always going to be 
keep you solid in this business. We do our best. Yeah, we do our best. <laughs> there was this period, though, and we all mentioned it uh, uh, already in Praise of Older Women, everything you did with Anne of Green Gables, which, by the way, you're, you've got a huge, like, a wiki fandom page that's all about you and your character on Road to <laughs> Avonlea and Anne of Green Gables, and seeing you in King of Kensington and so on. And often I'm noticing, even just reviewing, looking at uh, King and Kensington, you're often this uh, object of desire. <laughs> and you did it well. And you do it well. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, fellas, so the fellas are chasing you. I, I never like thought that. of it like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I always think of as character roles. So. Right. That was just they put the script in <laughs> yeah, front of me and go. I did what yeah. they said. But they, no, so you've never thought of it as like that. No, was, not really. That was a, a thing for a while. No, not not really. When, when I think of in praise of older women, you know, yeah. I, I keep of the, the role that I was playing. It wasn't that she was sexy, but that she was sneaky. She was, you know, she was betraying her best friend, you yeah. know, with her... With her young boyfriend. So she was. Exactly. It, it, and she was scolding him for being sneaky, but she was sneaky that, too. That's right. <laughs> and on King of Kensington, which was a lot of fun to rewatch that, and always fun to watch King of Kensington, but you're the, you're the old girlfriend who, that's right. who comes back. Yes, who actually who does have an eye on, yeah. on Al's character. Yes, that's right. It, but. <laughs> so you'll excuse me as I w- no, no, went, went through the material and started to make <laughs> these connections. Tell me about the Anne of Green Gables experience, because I think there's such still this huge fandom around it. You, you worked out in PEI. You then are part of these two telev- the, the film and as well the television series. I think to this day, the, the, that's where so many people are, are going to place it. It's quite fascinating yeah. to me, actually. And, and it's delightful to me, too, because... Uh, it was a wonderful project and a, a, a worthwhile, heartwarming, heartfelt, feel-good, funny, you know, all the all the good things that you can say about her all true. Um, Slightly more conservative character than what we were just talking about. A more conservative about. character. But yeah. I like Miss Stacy a lot. I probably think Miss Stacy is probably much more akin to, you know, to right. me than than all the sexy characters. <laughs> right. But it's, it's been very touching to me that somehow the the role of that teacher— has struck a chord with people. She seems she's the teacher everyone wanted to have, right. would have liked to have had, right. and either did have or didn't have and wanted to. Did you have a teacher like that? Not exactly. No one quite as influential in my life, but there were teachers that I respected highly, like Mrs. Sherman, I told you about, but Leah Sherman, my art teacher. I think so it's wonderful. something to do with the intimacy of PEI in that era, right. too, right? You, our you teachers are so weren't quite, you know, yeah. as close to. They didn't know our families. They didn't know our day-to-day life. Sure. First of all, filming on location, you know, outdoors, all the outdoor stuff was done, you know, in this this village with no, you know, all fronts, you know, all right. exteriors with nothing inside. Oh, yeah, that, that routine. And it was always great going up. I think it's Vaughn Township somewhere that we were. Okay. And it was always lovely going there and being in the country. But somehow, given the fact that there were so many children, everyone kind of behaved as if they were in loco parentis, you know. The the children were were... Excellent at their job and very hardworking and part of the, you know, part of the team. But we all felt as, as grown-ups that we were, we had to protect the children and, and be there for the kids and, and help the kids. And the, the, that not only the, the, uh, the actors, but the crew. Yeah. It was a very good feeling. Also knowing that you're, you know, working on a project that everybody loves is, it always makes you feel good. Well, it was absolutely beloved as, you know, the, the fact that they're still making series about that character and about that book. Yes. It's incredible. And I'm still getting old letters from people who have watched the series kind of overseas. I have the hugest amount of people following me on Instagram from Iran, for example. Wow. 
because um, and Anne was very big there. Well, being an innocent, you know, kind of family story, it could be safely sold to countries in which the laws about things like nudity and sexuality were very, very strict. So Anne passed all those tests with flying colors in all these countries where this sort of thing was prohibited. And uh, I get still to this day get get letters from people from Russia, from but the lots from the Middle East. Iran is fascinating. You, just, you have to imagine East. the cultural. I mean, maybe the, like you're saying, the cultural differences aren't that great because it is a conservative, uh, very conservative milieu and historical in, the, in you know, the world. But at the same time, just the imagery I know is very different. Yeah. It's fascinating. (laughs) I do want to bring up the voice work because you did talk about how much you love radio plays. And as I started to look through your credits, I was amazed (laughs) at at how many of these particular projects I had seen and I had probably listened to. I'm pretty sure I can place your voice in heavy metal, for example. (laughs) I remember <laughs> that to me is so hysterical. We recorded that when I was in Los Angeles, and they were using whatever Canadian actors were, you know, kind of in Los Angeles, I guess. And I had no idea that it was going to be this kind of cult. I don't know, classic, classic a sexy cult classic. It sure I mean, is. <laughs> I had no idea. I don't think I've ever seen it actually. You haven't? No, I don't uh, think a, so. It has a great soundtrack too. Donald Fagan from Steely Dan is on it. it. There's little vignettes. It's all different cartoons by different, you know, animators. And yeah, there, there's your voice. Yes. And I, I can hear it. And then I'm looking here, uh, Scooby-Doo, GoBots, The Real Ghostbusters, and Heathcliff. I saw all those, yes. and it's all your voice. Yes. It's incredible. Well, you know, it's so st- this whole world of people who watch these things online somewhere, there's a guy who was a big Heathcliff fan right. who has sort of um, become a, an Instagram follower, and he keeps sending me things about Heathcliff right. and little cartoons. As he imagines and, you're and just a massive Heathcliff fan, I too. Just, I, have, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Did, was that often the case? You would be handed a script and you'd say, well, I don't really know what this is, but... Well, you, I mean, it was usually pretty obvious, actually. Right. It, 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 really, it really was with Heathcliff. And they, they were all such fun. The thing with Heathcliff and, um, and Dennis the Menace, too, that was done by a, a company working on a Canadian contract in L.A. So we had all these Canadians working this thing. But we, we were such a, a team that we never even rehearsed. We just did it kind of cold. But it's such amazing training for, for anyone who wants to be, you know, an actor or an actress. Yeah. Uh, is that... You instantly have to come up with an outrageous character and an outrageous voice and reading, like without thinking too much. There's no scratching your navel or thinking about your motivation, you know, or your history or whatever. You just have to do it like fast. Uh And it's tremendous training and uh, such a reliance on the other people that you're working with, you know. But they were all so good, you know. These people, well, the people in L.A., the voice business, they're, they're pretty great. I wonder sometimes now because... What happened to all those people that I worked with who were primarily voice people? Right. And they, were, they made very handsome incomes because the residual situation in the United States is very different from our situation here in Canada. Sure. You can make a lot of money. Uh, I, I still get residuals like for 14 cents, you know, for something I did like 20 years ago. Just stack those up and stack those up. save them for a rainy day. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, there were people who, you know, who were stars in that element. And then suddenly this whole thing of hiring movie stars, you know, to be the the leads and voice films and whatnot. And I, I wonder what happened to my old buddies, you know, who were who were so good at what they did. Well, it's true. If you watch just about any animated feature now, I, I can't remember the last time it wasn't a Hollywood star. 
yeah. you know, voicing it. That's it, right. I, I think it's kind of a shame. It is kind of a shame. I it mean, is. you know, it, it's fun sometimes uh-huh. if it's somebody, you know, yeah. it's fun to hear Bill Murray or something, but not all the time. Yeah. Like, it would be nice to just hear some other talent. That's right. Out there. And when someone, you know, kind of hires you and say, well, I want you to sound like, like such and such. And I, that's to me is like, that's a big no, no, like don't. Yeah. So to me, waving the red flag in front of me, I'm, I'm not happy with that at all. If, that, if you want me to sound like me and my various iterations of me, fine, but don't ask me to, you know, to come on and sound like another, another actress. I, it makes me very cross. Your voice has served you well. It you, has. You have a well. great voice. It, I, I, and I enjoy it. I enjoy doing voice work. Well, it's such a powerful instrument, isn't it, Mark? I have mixed feelings about, you know, I have to work a lot with my own voice because I edit all my own material all the time. How do you feel about hearing you? Uh, I've gotten used to it. You know, yeah, me at, too. at first, just like when people first heard themselves on a tape recorder. I mean, that doesn't happen probably so much now because we we're being taped well, all over the place. Big difference—you hear it on your phone or something. It, it right? is. Yeah. But at one time, you know, nobody taped their voice. Nobody knew what they sounded like, and when they did, they were always shocked and horrified. Yeah. But you you get over that. You, you get you get over that, and it's a tool. It's it's a it's wonderful the things that you can do just with your voice. I mean, you could sound very serious, and you could sound pained, and you can. Sound happy, and you can sound all those things just one of your by thinking it. great tones is to me is like refreshing and effervescent. <laughs> I, I think you do it. Where I really noticed it was um, when you did the Bravo Network. Oh yes, and I remember thinking, who is this woman who can enunciate and pronounce so perfectly? <laughs> and it was such a great, <laughs> refreshing change from all the other voiceover that I was hearing on other channels. Specifically, you know, often a channel will have a voice, and they take you through it and so on. And yours really cut through. Well, I, I hope that is a good thing cutting oh, through. Oh, no, absolutely. I hear some of the voices now, actually, quite... Uh, this is a... Oh, this is an age thing, I guess. But it seems that the style of voices is as much open to change as, as everything else in the world. Sure. And I find the changes in the last couple of generations, particularly in female voices, I don't get it at all. I, I find listening to mature women who sound like they were like they're 12 years old uh, very upsetting to me. And I hear, I hear voices like that reading the news, and I said. How can anyone take a voice like that seriously? That's it's kind of up voice. here and kind of up there, right. and kind of like it's like mad gerbils and kind of a. And I, I, I'm, I'm kind of appalled, and I, I don't get it. Around my house, we sometimes say, "Too bad about the voice on that, on oh. that person," or oh, "Too bad, really? you know, great, great guy, but ugh, that voice." But though there's no awareness. <laughs> there's right. no awareness that I, I don't know about you, but when I meet someone for the first time. Okay, you can you know you control the way you look, how you're dressed, you know, your shoes are shiny, you've got a good haircut, your sh- whatever. But as soon as you open your mouth, you just give everything away you about, about you. And if I find someone who sounds like this, I'll, I mean, there's no way I'm going to trust that person <laughs> to do anything serious in my life. I just won't. Yeah. Like if you're going to sound like you're 12, I'm I'm sorry. To me, I mean, it felt like there was a line from Bravo to what you do on Nocturne to a certain degree. Like there was a lot of similarities in how you wanted to present. I guess because in both cases, you want to be taken seriously, Mm -hmm. and yet you do want to be clear, and you do not want to confuse anyone, and you do want to sound as pleasing to the ear as you can be. And that's another thing, too, the idea that you don't have to think about being pleasing to the ear. Now, I don't modulate my voice to be pleasing to the ear. Right. But the fact is, if your voice is not pleasing to the ear, 
there are things you can do about it. I sometimes think that if there was nothing else I wanted to do in this world, if we want to see women in politics and high positions, mm-hmm. I would like to train them, personally train them in terms of how the voice work. Because sometimes, I again, I see women stand up, and I know their position in the world, but I hear them talk, and again, they sound like they're 12. And I, have, I cannot have any, any faith in what they say because of the way they say it. So uh, all you women out there, uh, anyone listening, don't think your voice is just something that you have and you can do nothing about. There's, there's such easy ways, really, to, to modulate your voice and to change it. And certainly, as a theater school, you know, we, um, for some people, they had to work very hard. A changing, but their voices were either too high pitched or they're too nasal or they're too, whatever, they were too something. And they worked extremely hard to make their voices so that they could function as instruments of art and communication. I still think about it every day with every broadcast. I'm sure you go through it too, where you, it's, it's like you, you're refining and you're remembering and you're, what is the code I need to follow? A here? certain, a certain feeling, yeah. I know, certainly in front of a, a microphone. Yeah. There's a certain kind of place that I know that I'm, I'm comfortable, and I, I'd like to know that the microphone is picking that up, and I'm making it easy for them. And it is a, a, a performance to some degree. It is. Yeah. Absolutely. That's what you're doing. Well, it's communication. Yeah. I mean, performance is communication. Sure. But all, you know, I mean, we're communi- what we're doing now is communication. And right. uh, be prepared to do it well. And, again, are they teaching that in schools? Or are they giving any guidance? I really don't know. I don't know what's <laughs> it happening. It doesn't seem like <laughs> I, t- I, I know. Yeah. Like, like, like. Like, oh my like, goodness, that's a tough you one. You deal with that a lot when you're interviewing people? I find it's either the tap is completely running, and I know that I've got a huge editing job in front yeah. of me. You either are that person or you aren't. Uh, I thought it was just the, the women. I thought it was just the females. Oh, no. But no, it's not. It's, yeah, it's oh, the yeah. guys, too, because I've been keeping my ears open. Yeah. And I, I don't understand, because to me... Communication. I mean, everywhere you look, there's schools of communication. You know, da, 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 it's like a big thing, communication. Uh-huh. But somehow, I think we're failing at communication with all this this emphasis on communication. We are not giving people the tools they need to communicate. Conversation doesn't seem to be a thing that people even do as That's much. Right. Uh, we don't talk on the telephone much anymore. A lot of us. So I do think there's a huge degradation that's happening. But maybe that will be for people like you and I that we we will go on with our lives and we'll feel bad about how the young people are communicating. Well, you know, there's a a zeitgeist. One thing I really think I've finally learned at this time in my life, there is a zeitgeist in the world, a certain kind of forces at play. And you can try to fight it, whatever. um, But sometimes they're just, it's a fight you can't win. So just, you know, proceed doing the stuff that you, you know you like to do and that you feel that has worth. And forget about the rest of it. You know, not try to be au courant because au courant might not be what you want to be. The book, when did you decide, okay, because I struggle with this all the time. People say, you should write something, you know, I think you could do it. But I I think there has to be a great personal belief that you'll be able to sit down day after day and crank out a tale and know that you have those characters realized and that you have the language to tell that story. Uh, I think that the desire, first of all, is the, the the important thing to really want to do it. And the reason why I wanted so much to do it was, you know, in my in my life as a young actress and meeting audiences and talking to audiences after a performance, is that these are people who were say were theater goers and love the theater, love going to the theater, but they didn't know anything about acting. 
acting. They knew about actors, but only in terms of filming. They knew about the scandals, and they knew about the huge salaries, and they knew about the drunkenness and punching photographers. They knew all the silly stuff. But in terms of knowing... The craft. You know, what, what, what actors do when they come in to go to work, right. how they prepare to get up on the stage, they knew nothing. And these are people who attend the theater, yet for some who never go, well, what, what happens? How does this happen, this performance on the stage? Right. It is a bit of a magic trick. It is a bit of a and it should look like a magic trick, but, you know, a lot of hard preparation goes into the magic trick and training to do the magic trick. So I thought, well, after hearing the same questions over and over again and realizing that these very devoted theater audiences knew nothing about how acting happens, I thought I would like to write a book about it. And Tell I thought that story. They, the best way to do it would be to talk about, you know, how actors train. How was that process for you? It was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed you it. You did? Yes. Oh, I did. I, really, <laughs> I, I, love, I love writing. You have, to be, you have to be psyched in up, you know. You discipline. To be there and discipline. Yeah. I set aside time at the time and when I had the time to do it. But I did... Um, did you hole away in an office or I, go I, somewhere I, nice? I did or? it. I did it. No, I was just, you know, I was, I was living in New York at the time. Okay. And um, I finally, I'd left, I'd left Tamara, the, the production that I was in in New York, which I'd been in for, well, a year and a half. And uh, I decided I'm just going to take the time now to finish this because it had lingered for a number of years. I hate unfinished things. I like finishing what I start. I, I'm with you on that very much. And, and even, you must have gone through all the things, though, that the author goes through, which is the doubt, and maybe I should just stop this, or... No. No, you just felt... <laughs> no, once I decided... No, the thing is, once I just... It takes me a long time to get to the point and say, yes, I'm going to do this. That's the thing. But when I, if I finally say I'm going to do this, I have to finish it. I, I can't think of too many things where I start something and then just leave it in the middle, because it's, like, not proven to be what I thought it was going to be. That's an incredible high wire act and I admire it greatly. Yeah. I think I think putting the effort to, to do that and to realize the characters and to know the story you want to tell. And I guess that's part of it, you know, is really having a Knowing firm understanding story. of what it is you want to say. Exactly. And yeah. that's my, my problem at the moment because I would like to write another book, but I don't know what to write about. There seems to be nothing that compels me as strongly as this, you know, this first idea. But, That's you know, I love theory. books, you see. I love right. books. And, I mean, I mean, I, sp I spend a lot of my time reading. And I, when I read, a, you know, good writing, I, I'm so thrilled by it. And, like, how, and sometimes when I read a novel that's so complex but so beautifully put together, you know, I, I'm fascinated. Like, how did they do that? Oh, no. How did they can envision that? How did all that come together? And, you know, that's what paralyzes me. I look at that trickery i look at that skill i look at that but you don't know until you start mark you right. have you have to start and struggle with it otherwise you'll never know how you get out of it if you right. don't get into it in the first place right um there's a picture i saw of you cooking for moses oh, and gosh. it says that you really enjoy cooking for moses i did enjoy cooking for <laughs> moses and uh I, I still do like preparing food for him but i i'm now on a non-gluten non-sugar non-dairy so, so my my desire to cook has really kind of almost vanished. That changes, right? But uh, but the you know, diet world we live in now. It very much so. Yeah. But you know, cooking is again is just like is it like acting, to me, or like making? I made stuff up. I wasn't very good about following recipes. You're not as sure about the cooking world as you are about your uh, your no. author life. <laughs> no, not at all. 
And at this point, you know, the less emphasis there is on food in my life, sort of the, the easier it is for me. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, just in the sense that because you, you are dealing with dietary restrictions, and so it's just... It is. It is. And I, it I find I'm, I'm trying to sort of find a reason to be interested in cooking the way I'm supposed to be cooking. I know. And I, I, I feel just, the exact no. same way. I don't have it. No, anymore. I like, you know, lots of salt and lots of hot sauce and lots of honey and right. lots, you know... And, and lots of and, and sugar and maple syrup and, you know, all the things. When and, the and canvas cheese. is wide open and you have all the paints, yeah. I mean, that's a great feeling. Exactly. We don't live in that world anymore, it seems. Uh, no, no. <laughs> but it has been so good for me, you know, this this new diet that I, I really, I, I'm compelled to follow it. I, I hear that's it. how it works. Yeah. Yeah. It is. <laughs> Very nice. I can't deny that. I'll ask because uh, you two have, have uh, been together for years. It feels like it's been a great back and forth of a meeting of the minds of a, you inspire each other to go on these artistic adventures. Well, I don't know if I ever inspire Moses, but Moses, again, like my parents, I've been, I've been doubly blessed right? because again, females, we are subject to what our parents want for us. And we are also very much subject to what our partners in life want for us or how they see us and how they envision us. So on the one hand, I had my parents you know, who just gave me such liberty to be who I who I was, and to want to do what I wanted to do. And Moses is the same the same way. If I want to paint, travel, write, whatever, um, he will do everything possible to help me make sure that it becomes a reality. And uh, that is a, a total blessing mm-hmm. because you can love someone dearly, but still hold them down, yeah. keep them back. Say, well, I don't think you should do that, or or let's go do something else instead. Or I, I've not had to follow a lot of the domestic demands, really, that a lot of women have, and that uh, that is something still that we you know we are talking about in this this new era of, of promoting women in you know in in the arts and the profession that that women still are by and large their mothers. You know, they're often mothers and uh, or or daughters, or they have family roles to fulfill. And no one to help them do it, or not the money to get the help to do it. And uh, I've been, you know, liberated from all that by a very generous and understanding partner. I mean, there's always going to be that other thing in life. I, I more or less live child-free. I've made some decisions along that time, designed my life as best I could to to live that life. I do sometimes look on the other side of it and think, hmm, I wonder what that would have been like. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You can't yeah. help but do that. That's human, a human thing. The yeah. life not lived. Right. But you 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 seem very pleased with the decisions you've made and the life you've lived. Well, you know, it would be so foolish not to be because it's like suicidal. It's committing a suicide in reverse, you yeah. know, kind of going back. I knew enough actresses who were moms to know that this is not an easy thing. It's, it, I think it's one... It's, Maybe all the professions, but maybe law is just as demanding of women, you know, in terms of relationships sure. with family. Actresses became moms. It's 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 very tough to fulfill both roles. It really is. And uh, I, Some, somebody's going to pay. Somebody's somebody's going to pay. It hasn't yeah. been, you know, it's it's okay for the parents, but it's harder for you, the children. Yeah, you or the kid are going to pay. Uh, exactly, yeah. you know. But I look at little children and say, wouldn't it be nice to have some grandchildren, you know, <laughs> just because they're just so sweet and they so They are cute. so sweet. And they're yeah. lovely. I mean, the yeah. children are just beautiful, and I yeah. enjoy watching them. And What is a day for Marilyn Lightstone? Oh, it right varies. Now? I spend yeah. a lot of time goofing off. <laughs> 
I want to goof off. I want to goof off. And I like, I read the, I read the, the Post and the Globe every morning. Okay. I, like, I don't, because I don't watch the news on television. Hot I, cup I, of I, sadness every morning. Well, you know, I feel I should, I should really know what's going on if <laughs> I intend to have an opinion, which I usually do. Typical day, it all depends what I'm doing. And as I say, I'll, I'll have kind of, kind of little love affairs with something that'll happen. So it'll either be either the writing of the book, and then right. I'll have one kind of thing. Or if I'm painting and working an art thing, it'll be another kind of whole set altogether. Uh, if I'm working on Hit Parade, you know, kind of you know, here in the studio or doing a book, it all depends really what the, the demands of the day are. are. Are you a person who meanders through that work throughout the day, or do you sit down and say, okay, I've got, I'm going to put in 90 minutes on this? No, I'm a meanderer. I'm a bit of a meanderer, too. I'm a meanderer, and it's kind of hard to sort of sit down and get get yourself going at certain times because you're busy meandering on something else. I find sometimes I have to go do something else so that I can continue the work of the first thing. (laughs) Like I need to take a mental break so I can come back to it. Well, I'm I'm weak, weak. I always find an excuse to sort of you know to, to goof off if I want to, saying, "Well, I'll get through this and then I'll be able to focus more fully," you know, on whatever. Well, I I think about the films, the television, the voice work, the photography, the book, all the different. Uh, obviously, your all time classic hit parade, being on Nocturne every night. It's an incredible arc of a career and an incredible life and an incredible uh, contribution to the arts. So you're, thank you for all you've done. You're, you're very good for saying that, Mark. But I'll say, if find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. And I feel that really what happened to me. I found something I love to do and I don't work. I just do stuff I love to do. Well, that was a real treat, uh, getting a chance to speak with Marilyn Lightstone. Love talking to her. Nocturne is on the new Classical FM, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Standard Time nightly. You can watch her sing-along TV show, Your All-Time Classic Hit Parade, Friday nights at 8.30 p.m., also Eastern Standard Time on Vision TV. And if you would like to learn more about her career and see some great video clips of her on uh, different TV shows and films over the years, might I suggest MarilynLightstone.com I also want to thank our sponsors today, Red Eye Media and Crow's Theatre. Go see Carly Street, currently on stage with Grounded Crowstheater.com for timing and tickets. Thank you for listening. We are back on Thursday with another edition of our Remix series, my 2019 interview with artist and media personality and provocateur Sukian Lee. You can always listen to episodes at classicalfm.ca, iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, artattheendoftheworld.com. And uh, you can find me on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Drop me a line. We'll speak to you Thursday and for as long as we can. podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.